this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. This is a podcast that is sponsored by the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. And today, we're going to be talking about a very particular program that is put together by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and that's the Humanitarian and Human Rights Resource Center, which is chaired by Doug Ubelacher. Doug is a curator and senior scientist at Smithsonian Institution National Museum of Natural History and has served as a consultant in forensic anthropology since 1978. He's served as an expert witness, reported on more than 900 cases, and testified in many legal proceedings. As chair of the HHRRC, Doug is going to be sharing with us today some of the webinars that are available on demand now from the ForensicCOE.org website. We're also going to talk in general about the HHRRC program and how it fits in with forensic science in the United States. It's a really interesting program that assists forensic science all around the world, especially in some areas where there have been humanitarian, of course, and human rights concerns. Doug, welcome to Just Science. Good to be with you this morning. So, Doug, let's start off just talking a little bit about the HHRRC in particular. How long has AFS been doing work under this center framework? Well, I think a good place to start is with the deep roots of AAFS involvement in these types of issues. Over the years, there have been many individual members who have participated and provided leadership in uh, humanitarian and human rights issues around the world in forensic applications. Uh, my colleague, Clyde Snow, fellow anthropologist, uh, comes to mind. He was a member of a group who, with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, in 1984 visited Argentina in an attempt to bring issues of forensic science to bear on the many missing that were noted in that country following the military dictatorship. Uh, that led to his continued involvement and the formation of the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team, which has done wonderful work in Argentina and gone on to assist in similar issues around the world. So with those deep roots, it occurred to us that although the American Academy of Forensic Sciences had a history of individual involvement, there had never been a formal program. And that led to the 2015 formation of the Humanitarian and Human Rights Resource Center that was approved by the Board of Directors. And this was an initiative of then-President Dan Martell, president of the AAFS. So since then, we've gotten organized. We have a number of subcommittees that deal with making publications and documents available for use, a laboratory and analysis protocols committee, a committee that deals with education, providing educational resources to those who are indeed relating to these issues, and a subcommittee on equipment, uh, focusing specifically on how we can meet the equipment needs, which are so vital to various initiatives uh, around the world. A key part of this initiative, however, involves direct assistance to projects that involve recovery and identification, evidence preservation, training, capacity building, and supportive research, all aimed at providing the very best forensic science available to these issues of humanitarian and human rights needs that are so apparent um, in 
various areas around the world. Doug, let's talk a little bit about the details of the kinds of projects that you're involved in. So many of the projects are oriented around forensic anthropology and mass disasters, refugee crises, and things of that nature. Do you also work with countries in helping more broadly and the assistance to their forensic science development? Yes, I think if you look at the projects we've supported and the initiatives, they certainly involve recovery and identification issues, and anthropology and archaeology are center to that effort. And we have projects that we've supported involving recovery and identification in central Mexico, in northern Mexico, in Italy, assisting with the identification of the 800 victims of the migrant shipwreck of April 18, 2015, projects in Peru and northern Guatemala, and important to the U.S., identifying unidentified migrants that have found in the U.S. but likely came across the Mexican border. These are all examples of funded projects. But in addition, we also deal with evidence preservation, an issue that's so important in many of these areas is once evidence has been found, to maintain it properly so that it can be available in the future to address uh, these types of issues. Training and capacity building is a, a central focus. We've supported projects in central Mexico, in the Philippines, in the uh, UK with diverse participants from around the world, and more recently in Uganda. The goal there is to provide training of U.S. experts and others around the world that have needed expertise, but more importantly, capacity building. The goal there is not so much to send an expert to help on personal cases, but to build the capacity of local teams so that when the expert goes home, they have the ability to improve their practice and to increase the quality of the forensic science that's applied. The universal experience of scientists that get involved in that is it's a chance to do some good, but almost all agree you learn more than you teach. Uh, these are very educational experiences for all involved, and they greatly improve the practice of forensic science around the world. At the base of all this is, is research. The research projects that have surfaced through this program are vital to recognize the unique problems that are presented by these types of applications and the call for new research that they they stimulate. We've supported a, a number of innovative research projects that directly relate to issues encountered in forensic applications where there aren't ideal solutions right now. First, talk about some of the places where you all have one of the themes that runs through a lot of what we do here on the podcast is talking about the work the forensic scientists do to make sure that the victims of crime are not forgotten, that the cases are seen through by professionals who are devoted to the science. And I think that you all really are a very nice example of that in terms of the work you do. The one that comes to mind are the ones in Cambodia. You have done a project with Julie Fleischman at Michigan State looking at the uh, human skeletal remains from the mass violence in Cambodia. I don't know whether folks in the younger generation know, but Almost a third of the population in Cambodia was killed under the Khmer Rouge back in the 1970s. And even to this day, a lot of those folks have never been identified. And, and a lot of what happened in Cambodia has not really been completely investigated. And that is one of the areas where you all have worked. And we actually did a webinar on, on Cambodia here that uh, folks can access from the website. 
can you kind of tell me about that project and projects like it that you all have been involved in? Well, I think that project is a wonderful example of the need for evidence preservation around the world. You know, there are so many efforts that have taken place that have yielded evidence, in particular human remains, that have not been identified. But the hope to identify them largely depends in the future on how well they're preserved and whether they become available as new techniques and new information comes online. And I think the Cambodia provides a good example of that, where a lot of remains had been recovered through uh, efforts by Cambodian institutions, but they were threatened by the, the harsh conditions in the area where they were stored to the point that it became unclear that in the future they would be available. And the wonderful work of Julie Fleischmann, combining with, importantly, with the local authorities, has greatly strengthened the conservation issues and the preservation of that evidence so that it can become available in the future. One of the other things you all do is to partner with some of the uh, local non-governmental institutions and as well as governmental groups to uh, look at these issues. Another example where there's enormous numbers of human remains because of either migrant issues or organized crime is in Mexico. And you all have partnered with the Mexican forensic anthropology team there to develop the uh, capacity in forensic anthropology in Mexico. Yes, Mexico presents complex and large issues of uh, identification. And one of our projects has been in central Mexico in basically providing the training needed for the experts that are online there to do their work uh, as efficiently and using the, the best forensic science uh, available. We also had a project in northern Mexico uh, dealing particularly with individual cases and in allowing experts to apply the latest techniques to assist directly in identification issues. And I know that's been very impactful. I know it's, it's a strategic goal for many years now to improve forensic science in Mexico. I know CTAP at the Department of Justice is working very heavily in Mexico, and your efforts uh, really complement a lot of other things that are going on. Although, as you said, it is, it is a complex situation. It is complex, but it's, it's aided by increased communication. I think we can feel good that we've seen a surge in international cooperation and communication that can be very effective in trying to make some of these uh, identifications and assure that, that the best forensic science is, uh, is available. Let me just add that in these projects, although they provide wonderful assistance and input into local projects, the information and the science that comes out of that benefit all of us. Efforts here in the United States and around the world are improved with what we learn through these applications. And that's an important point that's often overlooked, but there is really a, a global strengthening of forensic science as a result of these experiences and in individual applications. There were a couple of things, I think, that we did through our uh, webinar series that I think really strengthened that. You all have supported Katie Rubin at the University of Florida in looking at how nerve agents are incorporated into bone so that one can look at skeletal remains. Of course, there's been a lot of disturbing things, especially in Syria in uh, recent years where use of chemical agents, including nerve agents, has happened, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon, unfortunately. And so having those kinds of 
capabilities is, is very important, even if it may be difficult to get into country right now. But you all have supported Katie Rubin's work to try to understand that particular problem better. Uh, yes, we did. And I think it's a good example of innovative research that we support that is directly applicable to a, a very important problem that we face globally uh, here in the United States and, and globally in trying to detect uh, nerve agents and similar materials. You know, her work was preliminary, very basic research aimed at just noting the extent to which nerve agents could enter bone and be incorporated in bone and then, of course, be detected through analysis. I think out of that work, we learned a great deal, and that will set the stage for more sophisticated approaches that uh, actually could test whether remains that have been recovered uh, have been exposed to, uh, to nerve agents. There are other but more down-to-earth kinds of things that you all are supporting, too. Uh, I know, for example, one of the things that we highlighted in the webinar series is Eric Bartelink's work out of Cal State on stable isotope forensics and unidentified persons investigations. And just science listeners know uh, there's actually been uh, some investment by NIJ into uh, research looking at isotopic analysis to provide information about you know, birthplace and region of origin, travel history, and things of that nature from unidentified remains. So the, the work that you all are doing in supporting Dr. Bartolink is very complementary to kind of a broader interest, I think, in trying to understand and apply the use of isotopic analysis in all sorts of unidentified person cases. Dr. Bartolink's work and others we've supported provide prime examples of that, where in order to determine the origin of individuals that are recovered, you really need baseline data from different regions that of interest. And this involves the formation of what are called isoscapes, patterns of variation of isotope proportions in different regions, so that when individual isotopic evidence is analyzed and presented, there's some hope that you can examine patterns that will provide some clues as to the region of origin of that individual. Eric's work is, is vital for the U.S. border in being able to deal with, with those issues of undocumented migrants that are recovered in the U.S. and figuring out from where they came. But similar work is going on in, in Europe, in Crete, in the Mediterranean area, and other areas where we're supporting. So you've mentioned a number of countries here that you all have already been involved in. We've mentioned countries in Asia and Latin America and uh, Africa and elsewhere. So uh, you all have had a very wide-ranging program, and it's obviously been very, very successful in an area that unfortunately doesn't get the kind of attention that it deserves, I think. It's so important for us to try to avoid these kinds of, of problems in the future to be able to understand and provide some closure of some sort, at least, in uh, using forensic science you know, very, very proactively to understand who was there and what the circumstances were and just make sure that that's all documented in a way that allows, if hopefully, justice, but at least for the record to live on in some way. Where is the HHRRC uh, hoping to take its work? Well, I think we've learned a lot in these first three years. And let me just say how much I appreciate the support of the National Institute of Justice, the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, uh, and RTI. That support, coupled with AAFS, has made all this possible. And 
all of us are very appreciative of that. I think in where we move forward, we are at the mercy of proposals. So our challenge is to use our International Advisory Council and others involved in this effort to get the word out that there is some hope that support can be provided. And what we want to see are proposals from the areas of greatest need around the world and those that have the greatest impact locally and the greatest impact back to us in the U.S. and internationally with the information that we learn and the good that we, we can do through this effort. And uh, that information flow back, I mean, this podcast obviously is one version of it, and the webinars are another. And, and as I've mentioned earlier here, you know, I really do encourage folks to, you know, look at, especially in areas of interest to them professionally, but also just on a personal basis to, to review that on-demand content on ForensicCOE.org to take advantage of a kind of experience you just don't get, but also is very, very relevant. Well, again, I would just express how appreciative uh, we are in the center and all the PIs on these projects for the support that's been uh, given by the National Institute of Justice, the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, and RTI. We couldn't do this without that support, and it's, it's really made the difference. Well, I also will put in a plug for the National Museum of Natural History. One of the most extraordinary museums in Washington is just amazing, and it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Well, you and your viewers are very welcome in our museum. There's a lot of good science there for, for all of us, and we hope you can take some time to visit. Well, our guest today has been Doug Uberlocker, who is a curator and senior scientist at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History, as well as the chair of the AAFS Humanitarian and Human Rights Resource Center. I uh, do encourage all of you who are listening to take advantage of all the resources of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence and the American Academy of Forensic Sciences as well. Doug, thank you so much for being on Just Science. Good to be with you. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 